Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Hello, this is Emma McClendon. I'm the Associate Curator of Costume at the Museum at FIT, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Uh, Elizabeth Way, Assistant Curator of Costume. Melissa Mara, Curator of Education and Research. Today we're going to talk about the Museum at FIT's Fashion and Textile History Gallery. For those of you who might not be as familiar with it, this is one of two gallery spaces we have at the Museum at FIT. It's located on our lobby level, just right when you walk in. And the goal of this space is to show the history of fashion through a new theme, a new focal lens with each exhibition. Each show draws exclusively from our permanent collection, and it runs for about six months at a time. So they're a bit longer than our special exhibitions, which are only about three months. Uh, Melissa, you were here when they first started. So do you remember anything particular about maybe that first rotation? Oh, yeah. Um, I remember when it first opened in 2005, one of our director, Valerie Steele's goals uh, for the gallery was that she really hoped that it would help visitors understand the important cultural, social, and technological changes that fashion can demonstrate. Um, I think what, what she really wanted people to come away with was that fashion is not just a blank mirror that reflects the spirit of the times, but actually that it is itself a part of living history, which was really, really unique um, kind of theme for the gallery at the time. And I think the idea for the space was that by exploring the past, we can better understand the present. So one of the reasons why the three of us are here speaking about the History Gallery is that all three of us curate shows there pretty regularly. Melissa's done some shows like uh, Force of Nature, I'm Gonna Do the Body, and Denim. And one of the things we want to talk about is how we research our shows. People always ask us this. The first thing they ask is how long it takes for me, it takes about 18 months. I feel like by the time we get our um, proposals approved to the time we open, about a year and a half. And also for me, a big part of the research is actually going into our collection. Um, we have this huge collection, over 50,000 objects that we're very lucky to have on site. So we can just walk into the collection whenever we want, possibly not as often as we want, but um, it's right there for us to look at. And so that really, just looking at the objects helps inspire themes for shows. I also think one of the unique aspects research-wise of the gallery is that some of the, some of the topics that people have focused on have been things so far removed that you would associate with fashion that we've had formed advisory committees, mm. right, to help advise us um, and give guidance as we were researching, helping us to make sure we're on the right track. Absolutely. You know, for Force of Nature, we had an advisory committee that had people from the Wildlife Conservation Society, a curator from the American Museum of Natural History, someone from a bio lab. I mean, it was really fun and interesting to have all these perspectives um, and all these people you wouldn't normally associate with a fa with fashion. How did, uh, I'm just curious, like how did your advisory committee react when you asked them to be on this committee to support a fashion exhibition? Oh, they were all super excited. I think they love this kind of interdisciplinary approach and these ways to sort of shed a new light on 
the, to the topics and the areas that they study. For black fashion designers, we also had an advisory committee because it was a controversial topic. We wanted to make sure we got it right. And so we really wanted a lot of voices from the fashion industry, from journalists, from models, from designers to academics. We really wanted to have a lot of voices in to make sure that we were really telling a story as broadly as possible. And so it was really fun to have all those people together. They helped us find new objects. They brought in their stories um, from working in the industry. And so it was really eye-opening because the other major source of research for black fashion designers was Women's Wear Daily. There's not a lot of secondary research written about black designers, so we had to go back to the newspapers, back to um, the contemporary press to get as much information as possible. So having the advisory committee really helped us fill in some blanks. Emma, you had an advisory committee also, right, when you did The Body Show. Yeah, and The Body, kind of similar to black fashion designers, it was much more filled out with industry people than maybe Force of Nature was. We had model agents, we had industry insiders, designers, we also had activists, you know, it was a very kind of politically charged topic. So Sarah Ziff of the Model Alliance was on our advisory committee, um, but we also had academics, people from other institutions like Harvard and Temple University and King's College in London coming in to really offer a very diverse perspective on the topic and help fill out this history with a broad sense of perspective. But what was also great was that starting with this advisory committee from early on, it gave us a great foundation to then build a symposium later on in the run of the show. And I know that you guys also had symposiums that kind of formed around these topics because they were so potent for the current kind of social and political climate. So for the body, a lot of our advisory committee members ended up speaking at a one-day symposium for the show, which just was able to expand on some of the themes and topics raised in the exhibition and open up a broader dialogue with our audience and viewership around the city and in the college. And one last thing I want to say about research is even though the History Gallery really focuses on our own collection. We still do um, incorporate a lot of theory. I know theory is a very strong uh, suit for Emma. Um, and you know, you brought in so much, and Melissa brought in so much scientific theory and history into the show. So it's really a balance between um, kind of fashion theory, other academic theory um, disciplines, and looking at the objects. And kind of building on that, when looking at our collection, I always really like to find pieces that maybe haven't been on view before mm -hmm. or haven't been on view for a while, or maybe there's a whole section of the collection that we as curators who have so much contact with the collection know so well that it's there, but it never really gets to see the light of day. Or we don't talk about it openly that we have this athletic wear collection, or we have this denim collection, for example. So one of the shows that I most recently curated at the museum focused on the history of denim. And this show really grew out of the time that I spent in the collection, pulling pieces for research, putting objects away, pulling them out for different shows. I noticed that we had a lot of denim pieces from different time periods. They weren't actually stored in one spot. So it took me a while to realize kind of the breadth of the denim collection that we had. And this sparked this sort of idea of looking at the history and led me to really go in and pull out each piece and start to see that we had this very clear chronology and timeline, which is actually quite rare for a fashion museum. Typically, denim as workwear 
people don't keep it, hold on to it for long periods of time. So there's not a lot of examples of denim that survive, much less held in fashion collections and museums, because quite often fashion collections will focus more on high fashion than they will on workwear or everyday clothing. And I started looking at all the different pieces and the numbers and when they came into the collection and soon started to realize that we actually had acquired them all around the same kind of five, 10 year period, which was when uh, Richard Martin, a previous director here at the museum, who later went on to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, he was an incredibly important uh, pioneer in the field of fashion studies. He had actually brought a lot of these pieces into the collection. He'd even donated some of them himself. And so it was a really interesting project also from that perspective of the history of our own institution to sort of be almost following this breadcrumb trail yeah. of a former curator um, from decades before. And so it was really exciting to put that on view and weave that history of our own institution into the show itself. But also I know so many of our history gallery shows have this goal of bringing out pieces that have never been on view before. A recent show that we had by our colleague Colleen Hill was called Unraveled. And it looked at garments that typically don't get put on view in collections because they might be unfinished or they might have wear or tear to the pieces that would, that, so they don't look quote unquote perfect and flawless. But this was so exciting because we got to bring out so many pieces, so many amazing examples of fashion, the fashion process that never get to be on view. I think my favorite piece from that show were these panels from a Viognet couture dress from the 1920s that would have formed the front of the dress, I believe. And there are examples of the finished dress in other collections. We can see how they would have actually attached to the garment, how they would have hung on the body, but we only have the unfinished panels themselves. And so it's very hard to think of a, a context to show these in, but within this themed exhibition, it, they worked fantastically and visitors really enjoyed seeing that in process aspect of a garment rather than just the finished kind of flawless, perfect item. Yeah, I mean, just kind of going on that unfinished or um, imperfect garments that were featured in Unraveled, I also love the aspect of uh, that exhibition also brought in the stories, right, mm -hmm. that are associated with garments and the memories that we have around them. And I think that is something that anybody can relate to, right? We all have things in Absolutely. our closet. Yeah. Um, and so there it's, it was just a really great example of finding a new way to look in our collection mm -hmm. to bring out pieces. And then this whole dialogue and conversation that it spurred after that. Mm -hmm. And you did that a lot with uh, Force of Nature and even fashion politics, finding new ways to frame objects that maybe have been on view before. Yeah. I, I mean, with Force of Nature, I think it was a show about fashion and the natural world and the different ways fashion takes inspiration from the natural world. So when I went into the collection, I was looking, or I was thinking rather, okay, there's going to be pieces that people expect to see, right? We want to see some floral pieces. We want to see some animal prints. We want to see some um, maybe eco-related designs. Uh, but then I had to go in with this sort of different set of eyes and kind of looking through this lens of you know, some scientific theories or scientific principles that maybe also get applied to fashion. So for example, 
you know, we had this Bill Blast dress and it was a very simple dress. It was navy blue and it had this sunburst pleating down the front. Probably not something you would expect to see in an exhibition called Force of Nature, but that was a really wonderful opportunity to use that sunburst pleating to talk about symmetry, mm -hmm. right? And how symmetry is so important in fashion design and fa uh, symmetry is so important um, it's really the foundation of all the patterns that we see in nature. And so you could draw those uh, relations and comparisons. Another example might be a piece, I think it was, yes, it was a Comme de Garçon from her Rising Sun collection in 2007. You know, I think fashion people or would normally know that collection um, as being a very nationalistic collection. The kind of motifs of the clothes were taken from the big red circle of the Japanese flag. But doing a little research, um, there's also a, the Japanese crane, which is very much a symbol, a nationalistic symbol of the country, um, and also has the same color scheme, the same red circle. So again, taking that unique lens and drawing comparisons that people might not have normally recognized if they had seen that piece on display before. One of my favorite pieces that you had in Force of Nature was this beautiful, like over the top uh, dress from like the 1860s that had like this textile that was like woven in all these different iterations and you used it to kind of think about um, Darwin's theories and about um, sexual selection. Sexual selection, absolutely. And women being um, kind of the opposite in nature where uh, male species are kind of showing off with their beautiful plumage, whereas in fashion with people, we find it the opposite in that period. And I was able to use the same dress in my current show, Fabric and Fashion, to talk about the Industrial Revolution and the manufacture of textiles. And so the same dress was able to tell two different stories. Yeah, mm -hmm. which I think is fun for also people who come to the gallery who are regulars at the museum to mm -hmm. see these pieces shown in different ways. Yeah. But another great opportunity um, when it comes to objects in the History Gallery is for us to collect for our um, overall collection. So everything in the History Gallery, like Emma had said, belongs to our permanent collection. So this gives us an opportunity to keep the collection current. And for two shows that I did, Global Fashion Capitals and also Black Fashion Designers, we brought in a large number of objects um, into the collection around those two shows. For Global Fashion Capitals, we were looking at fashion that was made in cities outside of kind of the four capitals that we think of, Paris, London, New York, and Milan. So we brought in um, designers from Shanghai, from Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, we got new pieces from Berlin. So it was really exciting to kind of look at the fashion landscape and find out what was going on in that moment. It was in 2006. 16, I believe, and it was really a show about what was happening worldwide in contemporary design at that moment. For black fashion designers, we did have a few pieces in the collection that represented some black fashion designers, but we really wanted more. So we were able to collect from contemporary designers. We asked designers to go into their archive and give us things. And also our advisory committee helped us track down pieces from like the 50s and 60s and 70s that would be were actually very hard to find. But now we have this really beautiful collection at FIT that represents kind of a history of black fashion design. And I think that with black fashion designers, that kind of ties into another really great aspect to the history gallery, which is that we are able to connect it to current events and even give a historical perspective to some of these really very hot topics mm -hmm. in the fashion conversation that are going on right now. Absolutely. And people um, people always ask both me and my co-curator uh, when 
when we did black fashion designers, like how did you know like to do this at this moment when all of this press was coming out? <laughs> I was like, we thought of this like two years ago. Um, <laughs> but this is something that keeps coming up in the press. So it seemed really prescient and it was. We were really happy that it was adding to the current conversation. But it was definitely something that had been in the air for a long time. My co-curator on that show, Ariel Alaya, also did a show called Faking It that looked at counterfeits and copies in the fashion uh, industry, which is again something that we've been talking about that's been um, an issue, um, a challenge in fashion design for a very long time. She was actually able to trace it back to like the 19th century. We wouldn't have thought of it that way. But, you know, fake bags, uh, designers being um, kind of copied by other designers. This is something that people talk about a lot. I know that for the body, you Mm -hmm. had very, very contemporary issues that were really popular in the press then and still very important. Absolutely. I'm with the body. Again, this was an instance where I got a lot of questions about about why I did this show now, why I did it when I did it. I had been very fascinated with this notion of the ideal body, the ideal fashion body, and how malleable and changeable it seemed to be. I'd always been fascinated in that while studying. This just took on the particular incarnation it did after you know, years of researching or thinking about this topic. And when I first started to incubate the idea and pitch it to our director, Valerie Steele, there was already the beginnings of this kind of grassroots body positivity movement on social media. The fashion industry was beginning to talk about it. It was really percolating. But it was really wonderful to see how the conversation really blossomed over the year and a half, two years that I was doing research up until this exhibition opened at the end of 2017. I wish that I could say that I knew that it would be the conversation on body positivity and body diversity and the need for that. I wish I could say that I knew (laughs) how big it was going to be in end of 2017, 2018. But unfortunately, it was just something that interested me. I think for all of us as curators, we research and look at things that interest us first and foremost, that that leads us into different projects and different avenues. And there might be some topic that we pick up on in one show and then that leads us to something else for another show and it's not always about predicting what is or isn't going to be on trend at the moment that a show opens although it's great when it is on trend yeah when it always works out well (laughs) so melissa i know that when we've talked in the past you've mentioned how some of your past shows have kind of flowed together and given inspiration to the next shows. Yeah, I think sometimes we all see the shows that each other are putting up and these like little seeds of inspiration get sown here and there. You know, for example, I curated a show called Fashion and Politics with uh, my colleague at the time, Jennifer Farley. That was back in 2009, I think. Um, And that was a very timely exhibition because we had the presidential election going on at the time. We we got lots of um, designers to replicate the dresses that Michelle Obama wore, Mm -hmm. um, and we featured them in the show. They were very popular. Uh, But one of the sort of ways that we were looking at the exhibition 
was not just politics, like campaign politics, but sort of social politics, class politics. And so there was one section towards the end of the exhibition, because it was chronological, mm -hmm. that started to look at uh, sustainable fashion. Mm. So we had a piece by a Rhode Island designer. Her name was Katie Brearley, and she worked with all natural dyes. And we had another piece by the brand Noir that was very big at the time for using organic cottons. And when we were doing that, my colleague Jennifer Farley um, started thinking about fashion's relationship with, you know, the environment. And then she got together with Colleen Hill, um, and I think it was like a year later, a year and a half later, they curated a really popular uh, exhibition at MFIT, which was called Eco Fashion, Going Green. Mm. And that was not only very timely, but it was really interesting because they didn't just look at this concept of contemporary sustainable fashion because the mandate of the gallery was to look at two, over 200 years of fashion, they went back and they started looking at all the good and bad practices mm. um, that fashion sort of has and the way it has impacted the environment. And they um, even did a book with Bloomsbury yeah. on the topic. Some of our topics are extremely timely mm -hmm. and this kind of serendipitous way that they emerge right at the right moments. For example, something like fashion and politics, the idea came about because my, one of my first jobs here was I was the museum cataloger and we had gotten in this set of men's suspenders. And I remember there was these two suspenders that were donated together. One was these red, white, and blue themed suspenders. They were striped. The other pair had these little red embroidered Republican elephants. And I was looking at them and cataloging them and I was thinking, wow, you know, these, here's a way that fashion is, you know, reflecting campaign politics, but how else does fashion express, you know, the politics that we have? Then I went to my, my colleague Jennifer and I said, you know, maybe we can start thinking about something like this. And then a year later, our exhibition was born. Yeah, I mean, with denim, it was similar where I was seeing all of these objects in the exhibition and I was thinking oh it would be great to look at the history of denim and so I started to put together the proposal and pitch it to our director Valerie Steele and I remember distinctly this was the summer of 2014 and at the time it's kind of hard for us to imagine now at the at the time denim was really not doing well. There was no denim on the runways, no designer denim really happening. The kind of wave of really expensive denim of the earlier 2000s had really kind of gone away completely. And so I remember when I first pitched the show, Valerie was like, oh, this is great, really interesting, but you have to address at the end how denim is doing so badly now. And, <laughs> and I remember thinking, yeah, okay, definitely have to touch on that because it's, you know, that's where we are. And then next month or two months, September 2014 hits and the designers start to show the spring 2015 collections and all of a sudden denim's everywhere. And I, it was just this explosion of denim across Chloe yeah, and yeah. uh, Fendi and all of these brands and you know that carried into Vetmom and now you know everyone kind of still has denim in their collections and so again this was another example of it seeming just really on trend at the time that the show opened in later 2015 that denim of course we're going to talk about denim because it's so popular right now but when we pitched it it really came out of looking at objects being in the collection 
production, just the nature of our jobs and being surrounded by these beautiful pieces. And it was really kind of lucky and maybe something, you know, just out there in the general feeling of things that kind of brought it all together. Well, Emma, even a show like Force of Nature, which was about a marriage between fashion and the natural world, was literally born out of my marriage, like in my personal (laughs) life, um, because I'm married to someone who works in the sciences. And, you know, I had sort of been thinking about it for years, but I would take my husband along with me to all these fashion exhibitions. And I'd be marveling at the beauty of these designs or the construction or talking about the history. And he'd be running around being like, that's the shape of a lobster. Or that's, that's, that looks like a butterfly. And, you know, I'd roll my eyes. But after a while, I started to think about these types of inspiration and where they come from and these sort of merging of different disciplines. So really, we do find inspiration everywhere. We, we definitely look at not just our collection, but um, exhibitions that go on at other museums um, and, you know, other things happening around the world. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, Emma, and I get you to talk a little bit more about, which I thought was really cool, is for your research for Denim, you actually visited the Levi archives. Yes, yes. I was very fortunate. I applied for funding to go out to California and actually go to the Levi Strauss & Co. archive. They have an amazing collection of not just the actual jeans and objects from the 19th century, which they do have, which were super, super interesting to see. But they also have an amazing collection of advertisements there as well. And so one thing that I was really struck by was how much the history of denim and the advertisements of even Levi's overlaps with fashion's own interest in sportswear in the 1940s and 50s. Claire McCardle, how she's always designing these play clothes and other things and using denim even in them. And then we see some of those styles echoed in Levi's advertisements. So it's not just cowboys, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not just um, this sort of very romanticized vision of this American male in his jeans <laughs> on the back of a horse. Yeah. It's also very much linked and overlapping and having this kind of cross-pollination with the fashion industry itself. And so in the show, I really wanted to bring out some more of that and show how the history of something as ubiquitous and well-known as denim is not as linear and not exactly how we imagine it to be. And I think that's something that we all kind of discover through our shows, that the history of how we think something is is always a little bit different. It's always Mm -hmm. a little more complicated. It always goes back a little further um, than we think it does. And I mean, Liz, I think that that really kind of came to the fore, particularly in black fashion designers, how you linked a lot of the designers that you included to other kind of contemporary events that were going on and maybe showed another side to it. Yeah, we really did want to kind of expand um, on this history of black fashion. I mean, a lot of black fashion designers who worked in the industry um, are forgotten today, but actually, you know, a lot of fashion designers, period, that worked in the industry Mm. in the past are forgotten today. Um, So we really did want to bring kind of new narratives, new stories, and reintroduce them. And one of the nicest things that people um, said about um, the show was that even people who were really familiar with this research said they discovered a designer they hadn't heard of. So that was really um, fulfilling for us. But of course, the challenge with that show was that the material object is doesn't always exist. We started the show in the 1950s, which is really, really recent um, for the starting point of a history gallery show. But unfortunately, you know, of course, there were makers going back um, 18th, 19th century in the U.S., um, but we just don't have those objects. For 
denim, you know, it was great because we had this rich collection, but for the body, it meant that I did have to go out and seek some very kind of targeted new acquisitions, um, particularly from more contemporary designers, but also bringing in uh, examples of plus size fashion from more recent collections, also examples from recent collections of designers who are thinking about people with diverse abilities and using technology to think of garment solutions for people um, of all types of abilities. Um, and so it was a challenge to think about how to incorporate also some of the more theoretical ideas of that exhibition into a show that really is purely visual, mm-hmm. how to convey that to the audience. And now might be a really good time to talk about how we acquire objects. Yes. Um, Emma talked about asking designers. And of course, that's another challenge is a double-edged sword because we don't do loans in this gallery. A designer, of course, wants to be a part of a collection like ours, but sometimes, you know, they only have one object and they don't want to necessarily give it up for good. So one of the main ways we acquire objects is just simply to ask the designer um, to donate it to us. And if it's available and that goes smoothly, that's a really great way to get objects. And sometimes you can't get the piece that you want from the designer, and that can be really frustrating. And then you're like, okay, what do we do now? You're scouring eBay or you're looking on Etsy for vintage clothes that might sort of fit a concept that you're looking for. I, I just also think it's interesting to point out when you're limited to an object that's in your permanent collection, you know, the challenge of what happens when you can't find the right thing to, mm-hmm. to make that statement that you want to say. Um, it can be really frustrating, but it also really does force you to think broader, right? Because you mm-hmm. have to think outside the box Absolutely. to find a way. You're like, you know, I have to talk about plastics and futurism of the 1960s, but we don't have those pair of white crush sunglasses. We do now, but maybe at the time, you know, you didn't when you were working on an exhibition. Mm-hmm. So what can we do? How can I, how can I address this? What can I use in place of it? Which is a challenge, but sometimes is fun. Like once you finally conquer it, yeah, <laughs> and you find that alternate piece. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know again, going back to the body that because the biggest challenge for me for that show was that almost any piece could be considered in relation to the body, because fundamentally clothing is about going on a physical form. So kind of trying to pick and choose which topics to think about, but then again, how to bring in some of those more theoretical, political aspects to it, and also ensure that people are thinking about those themes as they move through the show. So the way that I ended up incorporating those ideas was through video. I know that video, digital elements, imagery, that sometimes ends up being a key way to bring in some thing that's harder to show through an object alone or maybe you can't get the object so in that exhibition I set up interviews with different industry insiders and scholars and activists and put a large-scale projection of that video in the very first room so that even if a visitor just walked in and heard 10 seconds or 30 seconds of what these different individuals are saying about the current state of the fashion industry and body politics, that maybe they would take that snippet with them as they walked through, and that would help 
form a lens for them to 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 examine and consider the rest of the objects rather than trying to have every single object very overtly say that message. Well, speaking about challenges in uh, the History Gallery, I think one major challenge is the static nature of the space. Yes. Uh, Melissa, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about that? Uh, unlike an exhibition downstairs where you can rearrange the platforms, you can change the wall color, you can you know, add a sort of mise-en-scene, you cannot do that in the History Gallery. And I think each one of us, um, or anyone who, of the curators who have done a show in that space, mm. um, we're always approaching it with, how can we address this space with our topic? How can we make it feel a little different? <laughs> how, can it, how can we do something that helps the narrative of our exhibition along when we really can't change the platforms at all? You know, one of the things that I kind of grappled with that a little bit with Force of Nature because I wanted it to be a thematic exhibition. And I thought, you know, nature is this kind of cool topic where you can feel like sort of engrossed in nature. So we had sound in the gallery. We had birds of paradise, you know, uh, tweeting away on a screen. <laughs> um, we had, when you walked in, sounds of thunder and water. But the other thing was the thematic nature of the way the show was organized. I tried to create little rooms. So when you walked into the intro gallery, you had the sounds. When you walked into the next sort of bay, it was all about flowers. Mm -hmm. When you next walked into the second bay, it was sort of takes on this Victorian perspective of nature and how we think about that. That was how I tried to create a mood within yeah. that gallery. Emma, when you did body, you kind of approached that gallery space in a different way. Yeah, for actually both the body and denim, I did those shows chronologically. So that gave more of a straightforward layout where visitors could just go from one piece to the next and have this very linear progression of dates where you begin in the 18th century or the 19th century with the earliest piece and then you loop around to conclude with the most contemporary pieces. But still, I wanted to make the gallery look and feel like a different space yeah. from the show that had been there before. So what I really tried to do in those shows was use sound, but also video and lighting yeah. in a lot of cases. So in, in, the, in denim, and the body, in both cases, in the very first room, I, I made that into this introductory space through the use of a very large-scale projection of a video. With denim, I chose a video from the historic Cone Mills white oak plant, which unfortunately now has closed, um, but it showed the way that denim fabric is actually made and woven. It starts from the spinning of the cotton yarn, goes through the dye. That was a mesmerizing yeah. video, watching <laughs> and, that mechanic. And the fun that. thing about that video, too, was that it had a, a background song that reverberated throughout the rest of the gallery space. So it sort of set a tone musically in that stereotype of denim. I think that sort of Western wear feel. But then also, ultimately, in that first room, it had beginnings in the textile itself because it was a show about a textile. And then with the body... I chose these gobos that would project a cage-like 
shadow onto the wall of the platforms. And we disperse those throughout the show. And what I was most excited about that was that this cage theme really reverberated throughout all the imagery and the entire space of the show. Our main poster girl for the exhibition uh, was this fantastic piece by contemporary label Chromat, which was literally a pair of pants that are made out of a black cage. So they're a, kind of this cage around the wearer's body. And you can see that in the uh, show Exhibitionism that's on right now. So that was our poster girl. Then you walk into the gallery and we had these historic dress forms that also had metal cages that formed a lot of the shape that cast a cage shadow. And then there was an image from Vogue right in the first gallery um, that was a fashion photograph that was shot with a nude model behind a cage of measuring tapes. And the whole point of that was to show how proportions and measurements and weight and body ideals are a prison for women and female consumers in the fashion industry. And then this cage gobos went throughout the whole rest of the show. Just kind of, my goal for that was really to give the whole gallery space a kind of sense of unease, a bit of creepiness. You know, like this wasn't necessarily a happy show, right? Like we're not, like this isn't- it's the darker side of yeah, fashion. Yeah, this isn't a really, you know, happy, yay topic. So I wanted to add a kind of, the lights were kind of darker. It was a bit more dramatic in mm -hmm. how we did it. And so I want, and we mounted a lot of pieces for that show floating, you know, not necessarily on a mannequin. So there was a wonder bra hanging from the ceiling with a shadow projected on it and a rubber girdle from the 1930s that was sort of displayed flat and against a black background. So it was a little creepy. It was meant to be a little bit of like House of Horrors, I guess, <laughs> in a way. Um, There's also a maternity corset and a child's corset that really, I think, kind of shocked people when they first came in. But I remember, Liz, in Global Fashion Capitals, you guys had a totally different approach to the space. Absolutely. Oftentimes we have like a projection or something um, that lights up, that attracts attention in the first room, <laughs> that always helps um, kind of engage people. Um, but we created this style map, my co-curator and I. Um, and the idea behind it was that we would have this giant map and um, it would be fed by images from Instagram that we would be able mm. to hashtag images. And then we worked with a programmer to build an algorithm that would access these hashtags like Paris Fashion Week or Milan Fashion Week and be able to feed us with real-time images. Mm. So that was our grand dream. It did not work. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I couldn't go into um, the problems with the programming. Uh, when it's like open source from the public, like people will take a picture of a bagel and hashtag it Paris Fashion Week. So we <laughs> did want to control the images. So what we ended up doing was creating our own Instagram account mm. for the show, uploading um, images from these different fashion weeks, hashtagging them. And so it did work kind of um, more in practice than in theory. That was a really dynamic way for us to kind of just set out the geography of the show, talk about the cities. Um, and, you know, I think maps are something that help people get a sense of the world, obviously. Um, it was fun, I think, to see where Delhi is in relation to um, St. Petersburg, in relation to Sao Paulo, and think about fashion moving around the globe in that way. So having a projection, I think, is something that really helps enliven the space. The fact that the gallery static that we can't change the platforms pushes us to incorporate things like technology mm. in the galleries um, and partner with other areas or other departments in the museum, right? Like we work with the media mm -hmm, team mm -hmm. um, to do the map, to have, you know, for Force of Nature, we had a special 
website that was science related to help with sort of an educational aspect to the exhibition, or even your current show now, Liz, Fabric and Fashion, where we have the image mapping that is on the toile and projects all these beautiful patterns um, and textiles. That was another idea that I really wanted to help bring people into the gallery. You can see it from outside um, the, ex the exhibition space, so hopefully it was drawing people in. But I worked with Tamsin, our digital media manager. She found this program so they could like map out the projection, and I used images of textiles we actually hold in the collection. So it was a way for me to incorporate even more flat textiles. I have a lot of flat textiles in that show. Um, but it's also really fun. I have this 18th century um, toile, this muslin copy of a dress we have in our collection, and um, I'm overlaying it with uh, kente cloth and Nigerian stripe fabric and Thai fabric and um, cheetah print. And so it just gives you a different perspective on these historical It's a nice garments. spectacle when you see it when you're coming into the gallery. Absolutely. It's always fun to have a little spectacle. <laughs> but we all, it's, you know, you can tell probably as curators, we're also always thinking about the public. It's always, as much <laughs> as it is academic and scholarly, we do also have to think about kind of bringing people in and grabbing people's attention because yeah. the fashion and textile history gallery is at the lobby level. We can have an exhibition in that space every six months. Every six months. And the turnover between those exhibitions can be much faster than a typical exhibition. So we are able to show more stuff. All the guys who build our sets, who um, secure the mannequins, our conservation team who dresses, um, they can unload and load that gallery in less than a week. Um, and that's really an extraordinary feat when we think about any other museum in the world or even our special exhibitions gallery, which takes a little bit longer to set up and to install a show. So it definitely can be a challenge, but it has its benefits. And yeah. it's like that for a reason. And we probably should also note that the, that the reason that exhibitions in the History Gallery only are, are up for six months is because clothing uh, by nature, clothing, textiles, accessories, what we're showing in that space, what we show here at the museum, is by nature much more fragile than the types of objects you might see in other kinds of museums here in the city. You know, light is so damaging to textiles. Mm. And so one reason why we're able to have an exhibition up for six months, which is really as long as you can safely put a garment on display, is because we do keep those lights low mm -hmm. and our conservation team monitors all of that um, and makes sure everything is as safe as possible. Um, might be fun. <laughs> we can each share one or two of our favorite stories or anecdotes mm -hmm. or pieces from all the shows that we have done in that space. What do you guys think? I know for me, one of my um, favorite things or one of the biggest sort of coups that, that I managed to get was for the body. We were in conversation with designer Christian Siriano, and we managed to actually get the dress that he designed for Leslie Jones to wear to the premiere of Ghostbusters. And this was really important and I was really excited about it because if anyone listening remembers, you know, Leslie Jones before Ghostbusters, she had taken to Twitter and really called out the fashion industry for the fact that no designers were willing to dress her. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, that she was basically saying that I'm not sample size, I'm not the look of what they want for their it girls on the red carpet, like, huh, funny that nobody's willing to dress me. To which Christian Siriano immediately replied on Twitter and said, hi, I'm here, I'd love to. And he created this gorgeous red gown. He said it was very much inspired by Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. 
and he, uh, she looked fantastic on the red carpet. But the whole instance became a real kind of flashpoint for the industry, for the lack of body diversity, the need for a conversation about this. And, and Leslie Jones was just so thrilled with Siriano, and it became a real collaboration between the two of them. I have to tell you, that was one of my favorite pieces okay. yeah, on the exhibition. Mm-hmm. I was, I, I was, and I think it was also a really great addition that we got Christian yeah. Siriano to come and speak at the Body Symposium oh, yeah. that mm-hmm. was held in conjunction with your show, which I also thought was a you know, we do a symposium or two every year, mm-hmm. um, but that one had so much energy. There was such a positive vibe. Absolutely. So thinking about kind of my favorite moment of a show, um, for black fashion designers, uh, we, again, we talked about our advisory committee. I met Audrey Smalls. You know, she's a figure in New York fashion. I'd never met her before. I'd, of course, heard of her. She reached into her personal archive and ended up donating a lot of pieces that filled in some really critical gaps into our collection. But she had been um, a black model in the 1950s. She worked for Ebony Fashion Fair. She was a commentator for the fashion show. She has the Groundlings now, and she runs fashion shows um, um, in New York Fashion Week. So she's this amazing person. Um, She donated a dress um, that was designed by a designer named John Weston. And it was a dress that she wore um, in an advertisement in Ebony in the 1950s. Oh, wow. She also wore it to compete as Miss New York City, as a, a beauty queen. Um, and so she had this beautiful ball gown that she's had in her closet literally for over 50 years. And she was so generous in giving that to the museum and having it on display. When she came to see um, the show during our press preview, she was so moved. She was moved to tears by um, kind of um, the designers, the friends that she had known throughout the industry who are no longer with us. But just meeting her and really, you know, as a pillar of the New York fashion industry, going back for so long, mm-hmm. um, that was a really wonderful moment. We do get to meet um, some pretty cool people on the job, um, designers and artists and journalists, but that was a really cool cool experience for me. Yeah, and you guys had a roster of great yeah. people for your black fashion designers. Um, advisory committee from yeah, we have Robin Givon, mm-hmm. Andre Antali. Andre, yeah. So we, we were really lucky to have so many interested. Um, Veronica Webb was on the, um, on the committee. So we were, people were really interested and supportive, and that was really great. I think for me, I have two memorable things. One, <laughs> one would be from Force of Nature acquiring um, a piece by Iris Van Herpen from mm, the collection, yeah. Oh, yeah. which I think was a great feat for us and really exciting. When we, Force of Nature was approved, um, that was one of the designers where my head went right there. Like, can we get a piece mm. by Iris Van Herpen, who of course is a Dutch designer, mm-hmm. who's doing really, really exciting things that intersect sort of science, technology, and fashion. Absolutely. Um, and so there was this big question like, which, okay, which is the piece that we're going to get? <laughs> and I remember um, meeting with Valerie a couple times and going through to look at what, and we finally decided on this one piece that was a one-of-a-kind piece that was created in collaboration with Daphne Guinness. Um, so it had these other two, two exciting little checks to it. <laughs> but it was made to look like the image of water striking against a hard surface. Mm. So the whole dress was made out of this resin. And we were like, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's water, it's like the perfect thing for the show. <laughs> and we say, this is the one we want to we want to purchase. And then we get the measurements for it. And our registrar is like, um, so it's very large. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very delicate. So there was all this scramble and planning and you know, conservation worrying, can it fit in the elevator? Can we get it upstairs? How are we going to make a mount for it? But rest assured, it made it here in one piece and it was on display. And it now is a wonderful addition to our collection. But I mean, that just goes to the point that 
exhibitions are so much more than the curators. Oh, yeah. There's so It's like a, a film set. It's like a film production. You know, you do have so many elements to the production that it is a team endeavor. So it's not just about a piece that looks good. Mm -hmm. It's about, can we get it here? Can we fit it in the elevator? Can we dress it on something? How are we going to store it? Exactly. (laughs) I'll pass it in storage every now and then. It lives in its own little bay. Yeah. Beautiful little splash splash of water in our collection. Every exhibition definitely has its own set of challenges. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, they are just so much fun, and we really enjoy putting them together. And the History Gallery is a very unique space. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. That wraps up our conversation about the museum at FIT's Fashion and Textile History Gallery. Again, this is Emma McClendon. Uh, Elizabeth Way. And Melissa Mara. And you can come visit the History Gallery. We are open Tuesday through Saturday. We're free and open to the public, so definitely come check it out.